One of the things uh, about Elevate, uh, Elevate Life and Art is the school that meets here Monday through Friday and, and just ministers in a number of ways. Uh, but I'm teaching a Bible class there uh, this year. And one of the first things I try and help people understand when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the study of Scripture, when it comes to the study of the Word of God, which is what we call this, there's good reason to study it. There's good reason to open the book because it answers questions that every human heart answers. The Bible isn't just going after Christians' hearts, but it actually answers the questions that every human heart asks. And there's three questions that I, that I really try and point to as we look at the Scripture together and going, this is not a waste of time. This is important and it matters because this book suggests these answers to heart questions that every human being in the world has. And that first question that I, that I help the students look at is, the Bible answers the question of what can I know? What, what can I live my life built on? What can I build my life on? And what we see in the scriptures is that you and I were not just meant to know about God, but we were meant to know God. And it's in knowing God that we can actually build a solid foundation and life can be lived built on what we know. Now, we live in a world that suggests you can't know anything. Nothing is knowable. Nothing is, is any, there's nothing that just exists and you can grab onto. It's all just kind of, eh, you know what, that's great. Good luck trying to figure life out. That's how everyone is supposed to live when the scripture suggests otherwise, that there are things you can know. A few great, glorious, powerful wonderful, life-shaping things that you can know. The second and the third question stem out of this first question. The second question of what has gone wrong? See, there are a lot of people who like to tell you what you can know, but they have no answers as to what's gone wrong in the world. And it does not take a rocket scientist or somebody with a degree to look around and go, hmm, things aren't as they're supposed to be. We read the news headlines. This week in America has been racially charged and the tension and the anger and the protests and the riots. And we look around the greater, the, the, the greater country and then we go to the world and we see trafficking and we see abuse and we see slavery and we see oppression and we see caste systems and we see this destruction of human life. And we're going, this isn't right. Like you look around Every human heart, not just Christian hearts, are going, there is a problem. Things are not like they should be. We have a longing for things to be fixed, for things to be better. And the scriptures suggest that it's not a strategy, but a person. Not, a, not this, um, this list of plans that if you just do these things, then the world will be as it should be. The scripture suggests that a savior is needed, that we cannot save ourselves, that everything that is wrong in the world lies inside this cage underneath flesh. And it is the human heart that sin is wrapped around. And the Bible suggests that what has gone wrong is not out there, but it's right in here. And that we're not in need of new strategies or new plans. We're in need of a Savior who stands above this swirl of sin and pulls us out. He doesn't just point us to a way, a path of salvation. He is the Savior and pulls us safely home to God. But then the last question that I believe the scripture paints a huge picture for us is what can I hope for? 
Every human being has a longing to hope for something, whether that's the next vacation. I mean, the number of Facebook and Twitter posts that talk about, oh, if I could just go back to the beach. Oh, it's only been a week and I'm already missing it. Oh, if I could just go. Everyone's got this hope. Well, if I can just get this next job, if I can just get this next whatever, fill in the blank. You know what it is. The scripture suggests that we have much to hope for and all that we hope and long for to be fixed in this, one, in this world will one day come to a final resting place when God wipes away every tear from every eye. The end of death, the end of sin, the end of looking at each other with prejudice and racism and, 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 and um, uh, pride and anger and fury and seeing each other as enemies and, and, and classes and colors and all the different stuff that we so naturally build up walls to will be gone. There you go. Woo! All right, fine. I'll, I'll do it. But the reason I I encourage students to look at the scripture is because it addresses and it claims to address these very important heart questions that go on in every human being's mind, not just Christians. And so as we set out in this creed series, the Apostles' Creed, uh, for those of you familiar with the church background and not familiar, the creeds are the things that the church has been declaring together for centuries. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest of those creeds that have been said by believers, not because we're bound by these creeds, not because they hold this swaying, crushing authority over us, but because in the simplicity of these statements, there is housed all the teachings of the Apostles. If you were to look in the Bible, go look up the Apostles' Creed, you would not see it word for word. But just like the moon reflects the sun, the creed we are using to be the springboard into the Scripture that it houses, which we do see as the authority, which we do say, we say that this is God's word to us. The creed is us saying, God, we believe you. If the word describes and details God and who he is and who we are and what we need, the creed is us going, we believe you, God. We need all that you say we do. You are all who you say you are. And so for some of you that may or may not have a a uh, church background or more liturgical background in, 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 in this confession, you will read and you will see that one of the things we believe is in the Holy Catholic Church. It's a little C, not a big C. Catholic meaning universal. Does not mean we believe in the organization known as the Catholic Church here on the earth. Catholic means universal. It means the greater body, not just, we don't just believe in Highland Christian Church. We believe in the universal body of Christ that meets around the world and would confess these things together. And so when I read that to you, I hope you understand we're not saying an organization. We're talking about the living body of Christ around the world. So this is the confession. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In these simple statements, 
is not just um, some phrases that we repeat, but these creeds were used as a simple way to declare and to teach what the apostles would teach as they moved into a new place about Jesus. As these confessions were, were taught and they were said, they weren't the ultimate authority, the scripture was, but these became a very repeatable, very simple, very beautiful, very liturgical way to meditate on these big truths that are expressed all through scripture. And one of the things that the, that the creeds helped the church with was drifting. You see, we live in a day and an age where there's so much out there. There's so many thoughts. There's so many uh, religious ideas. And, and Christianity can just kind of be lost in the swirl and be numbered with all the rest of them. But the truth is, these statements kept the church directed. Because if you know drifting, Paul uses that word in the New Testament quite a bit. It's a slow process. Drifting is not a sprint it's not like people wake up in the morning and go, you know what, I think I'm going to head into some heresy. They don't wake up ready, all right, just shoot the gun because I'm, I'm on a sprint right into some false teaching. Drifting happens over time. And we talk to our children about this all the time because all four of them love to run headlong right into the ocean. And now, it's a, as a dad, you've got four heads you're looking for all the time. You know, not to mention the sharks, but there's waves too. And so I have to go out in the water with our kids and we look back at the umbrella that is our big umbrella sitting on the beach. And I say, kids, keep your eyes on that umbrella. You don't know where we are. This undertow, it'll take you miles and miles away. And you'll be separated from mommy and daddy. And won't that be scary? That should scare you so bad that you won't know where mommy and daddy are. You'll look up and you'll, who are mommy and daddy? I don't know. And I'm trying to, I'm just trying to get that holy fear in a child is a good thing when it comes to the ocean. You take your eyes off of us, you go home with somebody you don't know. You know, I don't know how that works. But drifting is when these kids are playing and they're, you know, riding the boards and the, the water takes them this way and this way and this way. And the next thing you know, they're a quarter mile down the beach. They've just gotten lost in playing. And it's the same thing when it comes to drifting from these elementary fundamental, if you will, teachings found in the scripture. Paul, in his letter to the Colossian church, declares these huge statements about who Jesus is. Author, he's the visible image of the invisible God, creator of all things. He holds all things together. He's over all things. And then he goes in to talk about why that matters. He talks about what Jesus actually accomplished for us in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 21. He's talking about this separation that has happened. And he says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. So it's not just actions. It's the thoughts that motivate this stuff that is housed right inside this busted cage, under some flesh, this beating heart that is at war with God. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself... See that? Who did the reconciling? He did. Did you do the reconciling? No, he did. He has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Listen to the result. He has brought you into his own presence. Who brought you into his presence? Did you just go walking up in there and go, who loves God? This guy. No, you didn't. 
He brought you into his own presence. And now you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Like, you could just camp there and live knowing that he brought me into his own presence and I'm holy and blameless without a single fault. How many of you, in the first thing, in the, the first thing you said after you heard that was, I got plenty of faults. I'm not holy. I'm not blameless. It's because you didn't bring yourself into his presence. He brought you in. And it was through what Christ has done, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. Verse 23, though, warns of the drifting. But you must continue to believe the truth. Stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The number of times I have had questions and and had conversations with people that ultimately at the end of the day have dealt with assurance. How do I know that I know him? How do I know that he's my Lord? How do I know that I'm saved? And what we see in this is because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you and I have been brought back into right relationship with God. He brought us into his own presence, and we are holy and blameless without a single fault. There's so many of you. I can feel it right now in your brains. You're going, nah, me, man. You don't know me. No, I don't know you, but I know what Jesus did. I don't know what you did yesterday. I don't know what you did last night. But I know what Jesus has done. And if the scriptures are saying that he is enough and what he has done has brought you into his presence and you are holy and blameless without a single fault, I think I'm going to take his word over yours. And I think some of you need to begin that journey as well. You need to start telling yourself, self, God's word is true. And if Jesus is enough, then all the shame and condemnation I heap on myself, Jesus actually took on the cross. And we'll see that in his work. What does drifting look like? It looks like this. Jesus isn't enough. I'm not holy. I'm not blameless. Boy, do I have a ton of faults. And when you start walking in that and you start thinking that and you start letting that crush you, you actually start doing more. Okay, well, I got to make up for those things that I did. And I'm going to just start trying to kind of balance the scale. Like I've I've had an off week. I'm going to get started back. I'm going to read two hours of scripture and I'm going to read numbers. I'm going to suffer really bad reading the Old Testament. I'm going to read two hours of that as best as I can. And then, and, and then I'm going to, oh, I missed two hours yesterday, so I've got to add four hours of reading the Bible. I've got to pray a couple more hours. You know what? I'm going to give more money because I've had a really off week. And you see what's happening? You're drifting away from the work of Christ. You're finding your righteousness in yourself. You're saying, I'm not enough, and then you're like, I can't keep up with this weight, so I'm done. I'm done. I'm just, I'm not cut out to be a Christian. I can't be good enough. If you only knew the power of that statement in light of the gospel. But some of you are like, I can't be good enough, so God can't want me. Another drift looks like, man, I, I have this great quiet time set up every day, have this great prayer time. I come to church all the time. I worship all the time. I raise my hands. I woohoo all the time. I do everything all the time. 
you know what, Jesus? I think I got this Christian walk down. <laughs> and you effectively try to live as a Christian without Christ. It's just Phariseeism. It's dressed up by our performance. You've still drifted just as far as those who think they have no relationship with God because you're trusting your works. That's what drifting looks like. We drift from the truth that it is God who brought us into his own presence and we are holy and blameless as we stand before him without a single fault because of the work of Christ. And so last week we confessed that we believe in the person of Jesus, that he is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer, the one sent by God, promised by God in the Old Testament, that he is unique in his relationship to God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. He was not created by God. He did not get his start because God was like, I need, I need Jesus, so I'm going to create him and I'm going to send him. But he's been with the Father in the beginning, but he didn't count that as equal with God. He put on flesh and came and dwelt among us. And he is our Lord. And how speaking and confessing and belief in this person of Jesus is what Christ followers have done since the very beginning of the church's establishment. Jesus is Lord. He is a person who we look to and we follow and we desire to honor and we worship. And he's not just a teacher counted among religious teachers. He's not just sage. He's not just wise. He's not just uh, a therapist. He's not just a counselor. He's not a, a hippie. He's not all of these things we try to describe him as. He is, as he describes himself, Lord. He's overall. And that doesn't just mean you and me. Because we cho choose to believe he's Lord, he's Lord over all. That is our confession as Christ followers. But this, mo this morning, we are confessing not just the life details of Jesus, what, but what Christians would confess as the work of Jesus. And I think this is probably where we kind of fall off a little bit as Christ followers. We're all about following Jesus. Jesus is a good dude. Jesus is God. Jesus is the man. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We, we talk about the person of Jesus, which we have to. But the person of Jesus matters because of the work of Jesus, and the work of Jesus matters because of the person of Jesus. So they're, they're intricately connected. You cannot separate the two. And so this morning, housed in the Apostles' Creed, is a confession that we believe the work of Jesus as much as we believe the person of Jesus. And we've been looking at it from the frame of how does this creed clarify for us? How does it unite us? How does it well-round or balance us? How does it direct our hearts? And how do we use this statement to direct the hearts of others? And I won't be able to cover every detail. We're actually going to be looking at the suffering this morning. Next week, we'll be looking at the Holy Spirit. And then the following week, we'll, we'll continue with the resurrection, ascension, and the return of Jesus. And why that work matters on our behalf. That first statement there, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. In the Old Testament, there are many times that you see um, barren women crying out to God to allow them to give birth to a child. Uh, Abraham's wife, and then uh, Hannah, Sam, uh, Sam, Samuel's mother. Uh, there are a couple of instant, there are instances in the Old Testament where God allows that to happen. And he says, I will, yeah, in effect, open the womb, and the woman will conceive, and it's miraculous. It's miraculous this day when a woman is told you cannot have any children and she ends up having children. You're just like, that is, that is amazing. That is a miracle. But it's not impossible. When we're talking about the virgin birth, we're talking about impossible. 
We're talking about something that is not just miraculous. We're, we're talking about something and we're confessing something that is impossible. And I know for some of us, you know, early on in the church's history, uh, for Christians, they were not allowed to be a part of the church unless they confessed they believe in the virgin birth. With the supernatural virgin birth, we are talking about God not being bound by anything, breaking through the impossible, and making a way because he said he would. And that, I guess, would be the reason you were not allowed to be a part of the church unless you confessed the virgin birth because you, in effect, were saying you don't believe God's word. You were saying, God, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you can do what you say you can. And typically a text read at Christmas, Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, you can see this story unfold. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Confessing that we believe the virgin birth is confessing, God, we believe your word. In the Old Testament, it is pointed to the rescuer, the Messiah, would be a number of things. That he would be from the seed of the woman, not from the seed of the man. He would come from the line of King David, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be born of a virgin. Now, either Jesus was really, really lucky, and it was really coincidental that he fulfilled all of these things, or God has a greater, grander, bigger plan, announcement to make about who Jesus would be. Not only is God, are we declaring that God's word is plain, it's true, his plan is true, we are saying that nothing is impossible for God. Supernatural conception, supernatural life, supernatural resurrection, God stepping into time and doing the impossible. Now, this is not just about God being able to do the impossible in your life. Sometimes I get that. He is the God of the impossible. He does love when we put up a door that says impossible, and he's like, boom, I punch through doors like that. That's easy. I can handle those things. But the truth is, what is even more impossible is that God would do something like this to point to the impossibility that we cannot, we cannot save ourselves so much so that there, there needed to be a virgin birth to convince you of how much you can't do on your own. How much you're going to need Jesus is declared in the virgin birth. So when we say Jesus, it, well, I, you know what, even if he was born and he really did have an earthly father and this promiscuous teenage girl confessed it was the Holy Spirit, that's fine with me. No, it's not fine with us. It shouldn't be fine with you. The virgin birth points to the impossibility of any chance we have on our own. That's the good news. And with all that we see going on around in the culture, we as the church have been tempted to believe as the world believes. 
If only this person was leading us right now, or this is the next person, this is the next strategy, this is the next thing, this is the next list of stuff. Hey, if I tweet enough, if I do this, if I say this, if I film myself talking about today's current events and, and giving my four-point plan, then that we, can, we can get back to the world we really need. And the truth is we can't. We are helpless. We are hopeless without a rescuer. God, through the declaration of a virgin birth, is not simply saying, hey, this is going to be great around Christmas time. You guys should talk about this around Christmas. This is going to be awesome, man. Centerpieces, precious moments, things. You're going to love it. It's going to be a marketing wonder. You're going to, this is so good. No. When we, re- when we recall the Christmas virgin birth story, we are recalling the gospel, the impossibility of you and I being able to bring ourselves into the presence of God on our own. We need him, and we're desperate. And what we see and what we hear can play a major role in affecting what we believe, and so what you're looking at around the world can cause you to go, I'm going to build my life on me, because that's all I got. And the truth is, no, you have the anchor of a strong and mighty Father who put together this incredible plan of rescue that involved a virgin birth. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, Just quickly, why would they say Pontius Pilate? Is because Jewish people and the church were saying Jesus doesn't just matter in Jewish history, he matters in the history of the world. So if if you're propelling or perpetuating a lie, don't be specific, don't use real names, don't use the names of people who actually existed in history that you could fact check, just make some names up. But they said, no, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. They were throwing Jesus into the history, history books of the world, not simply Jewish culture. That just has to do with them. No, he has everything to do with the history of everything. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's interesting that it jumps from birth to suffering so quickly. Uh, We don't know much about the the childhood, but we do see that in Jesus' three, three and a half years on earth that, that we have recorded about, there's much suffering. And this suffering wasn't declared as a, as a negative. It wasn't this, oh, the suffering, it was just sad and it was terrible. No, it was the joyous responsibility of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, to suffer on our behalf. And we read some of that last week in Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah. This was written six to seven hundred years before Jesus was born, Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sin. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. This is just a snippet of these descriptions and predictions of the rescuer. And if you were to ask people who have just a slight knowledge of Jesus, and you were to read that to them, they would tell you, oh, that describes Jesus. And guess what? That was written six to seven hundred years before Jesus walked on the earth. Oh, never mind. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to offer street cred to a book that I just throw out. The truth is, God's plan was way more meticulous than we will ever give him credit for. 
And Jesus then several times other, over tells the people and the disciples why he came. In Mark chapter 8 and 9 and 10, he does it multiple times. In 10, in 10 it gets a little more descriptive. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Now, I just can't imagine the disciples after this happening saying, Jesus came to make every day a Friday for me. Jesus came to give me my best life now. Jesus came to give me a pony. Especially when Jesus said, no, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus, born to die because it was God's good plan to put our sin on him. You and I don't need to turn our heads from the suffering Christ. In fact, I believe when we refuse to look at the suffering Christ, we make little of sin. Sin crushed our Savior. The judgment of God poured out on Christ crushed Him on our behalf. So when we Skip over Matthew 27, a chapter that entails in great detail the mocking, the beard being ripped out, the hits to the face, the whippings, the beatings, the walking through the city carrying the cross, the, the crushing weight of it, the nails being driven in, the, the oil, the, the, the vinegar wine being smeared all over his open cuts on his face. When we choose to not look at that, we're saying, I don't really want to talk about the suffering. We make little of sin. And the reality is, Jesus became sin for us on the cross. And the description of his suffering is detailed, crucified, dead, and buried. And it wasn't just our doing a wrong thing or saying a wrong thing. But sin is simply my desire to live life without God. To say, I don't want you. I'm going to find what I want on my own. I don't need you. My sin, your sin, your desire to live life apart from God was put on Christ on the cross. My desire to live without him, your desire to live without him, Put on Christ, not because Christ was sinful, but because he was sinless. He was able to be our substitute, to live and to die on our behalf. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 16, it describes the Day of Atonement where two goats would be used. One would be a sacrificial uh, a sacrifice. The blood poured would forgive sins. So instead of the people who committed the sins being killed... There would be a substitute offered. But there was a second goat. There were two goats involved. And the second was a scapegoat. And listen to the description in Leviticus chapter 16. When Aaron was finished purifying the most holy place in the tabernacle and the altar, he must present the live goat. 
He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specifically chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. And that sounds a lot like Jesus. You're right it does because he's been the plan from the beginning. It's an awfully elaborate plan for him to take as much time as he did to teach the people. Yes, it is. Let's give God some credit. His plan is bigger, greater, grander than we give him any credit for. And the truth is Jesus was not just our sacrificial lamb, but he was also our scapegoat. And he was sent outside the city. See, Jesus wasn't crucified or killed on the altar in the temple. He was sent outside into the darkness to bear our sin. In one person, we find the sacrifice and the scapegoat. And Pilate found no guilt in Jesus. He called him innocent, yet he was sentenced to die outside the city. Handed over as a criminal, though no fault was found in him. Galatians chapter 3 details it this way. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And Isaiah said that the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Criminals' bodies were typically dumped on a trash heap. But we know he was buried in a tomb. Another coincidence to the life of the Messiah? Or maybe God's elaborate rescue plan coming into a clearer picture? You know, as we close this morning, and the band comes and we'll spend some time just in worship, 2 Corinthians details it this way. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Not because they were swept under a rug, but because they were all put on Christ. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus descended to hell on the cross. Jesus experienced hell on the cross. As Jesus cried out on the cross, he didn't say, Dad, Dad. Typically always spoke of him as his father. On the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced a separation as the father turned his back on his son. The separation that you and I have always known that Jesus never knew he experienced. Christ was absorbing all the sins of those who would trust him as Savior. He experienced separation from God and the full judgment of God. Christ was not experiencing the blessing of God, but the full weight of the righteous judgment, and it crushed him. He was experiencing all of the judgment of God on our behalf. This provides great clarity for you and I as Christ followers. 
You know, when I fail at loving as Jesus loved, or forgiving as Jesus forgave, or serving as Jesus served, or even just obeying the greatest commandment, love God and love others, when I fail at that, I trust that Jesus did all these things perfectly and that his perfection covers me. I don't just stand up and go, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do more, and yeah, that's great, but you're going to fall again. You're going to fail at it again. And what do you do then? Are you falling in and out of this right relationship before God, or did Jesus do it perfectly on your behalf and then suffer and die so that you could be brought into the presence of God holy and blameless, without a single fault. We don't tell people as the church, Jesus is just a good guy to follow around, but that he has covered us. We don't just tell people, hey, you should follow Jesus. No, we actually say Jesus said it is finished. And the acceptance and the approval of of humans that we're trying to gain was put in us by God to gain his acceptance and his approval. And the way we do that is not by working harder. It's by trusting what Christ has done. That he is enough. That he has covered us. His work has covered us. The condemned have been made innocent by the innocent being condemned. We quote Romans 8.1. Man, what if the church actually believed Romans 8.1? So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's what it means. He was crushed for us. Jesus said in John 3.16 and 3.17, he came to save the world, not to condemn the world. We love to quote that, but do we know what it means? Right now, he stands as Savior, inviting people to trust his finished work. Condemned, I am now pardoned. Once rejected, now accepted. Because Jesus drank the full judgment of God, I can experience the full blessing of God in Christ. The Apostle John, known as the son of thunder, who softened in his old age, wrote to the church and wanted to help her with assurance. How can you know? How can you know that you're his? And listen to 1 John chapter 4. Maybe for some of you, you need to hear these words. All who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loved us, And we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid of the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he first loved us. Friends, this perfect love casting out fear is not just about the boogeyman under the bed. It's about the judgment of God, the people of God, not having to be afraid of the judgment of God, but we can stand assured and resting in the work of Christ. That perfect love casts out all fear. Jesus took on the full judgment so that you and I do not have to. And as Miss Sue read, 1 Peter 3, Christ suffered for our sins once, once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death 
but he was raised to life in the Spirit. The good news is that Jesus existed and that Jesus' work while he was here matters more than we will ever know. From the virgin birth to the suffering servant, his death and burial. All these things, God overcoming the impossible to bring rebels home. So this morning, we'll close reading this confession. If you guys would stand with me. Parents, if you'll hold your children and, le- and allow them to hear these words. If this is something that, that you can say, I believe, and I want to confess together with the body of Christ, feel free to. But if you're in this place where you're like, I'm not so sure, don't say anything. But there comes a time when there are moments that we just want to say something together as the body of Christ. And as we close this time in worship, may these things be the anchor that hold you in troubling times. I believe, where is it? That I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.